Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, you may not know this, but it has been a dream of mine for some time. To, to do re- a podcast with me? No, to replace you with a machine. <laughs> I don't think it would be that hard. <laughs> it could be an algorithm. It could be some kind of, I don't know, virtual reality. It could be artificial intelligence. You can already tell that I'm rising above my pay grade. I'm running out of terms. It would be more pro-social than I am, certainly. Well, one of the big pros to this approach, obviously, is that replacing you with a machine would enable me to even to dominate the content of this podcast even more. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Berkshire. Welcome to part 10 of our series on neoliberalism. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I think one of the things that uh, you have underscored in uh, introducing the topic is the importance of power and control. Um, and that's something that I hope comes up a little bit in our conversation with Audrey Waters, uh, who has studied the history of teaching machines and the use of educational technology. And uh, you know, one of the things that I think is so fascinating about this is that uh, so often the presumed advantage of educational technology is that it yields more control for uh, those who are in charge of it. Right? It'll, it'll put the state in a better position, for instance, to control what's going on inside classrooms. It'll make it more possible to ensure that students are being taught something that is in line with whatever curricular standards are, that uh, the aims of education can be narrowed to something like workforce development rather than you know wasting time on things like history and poetry. Um, but that power, it really interestingly, is rendered invisible because all of the decisions are made on the front end, um, that, that it is invisible in terms of the actual deployment of the technology, but in terms of decisions made about what gets included uh, and how the, the programs run uh, in terms of the elements of design, that all of that happens behind closed doors, which really is kind of a scary combination in terms of the, the power that it, uh, that it turns over to folks and the way that it obfuscates that power. Well, I think you just made a really strong case for why I could never replace you with a machine. <laughs> Well, I am so excited about our guest for this episode, Jack Already, Let the cat out of the bag. It is none other than Audrey Waters, who writes one of my favorite blogs, Hack Education, where she explores all things ed tech. Audrey is also writing a book about the history of teaching machines, telling the story of a very familiar dream that goes back a really long time. Audrey, there was a story recently about two of your favorite people, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, and how they're joining forces to revolutionize education. And I'm using that um, with air quotes around it. They don't know how exactly this is going to happen, but progress will be accelerated. There will be breakthroughs and it will go to scale. When I read that story, I immediately thought of you and wondered what kind of response you were having. When I read this, I thought this is actually the perfect hook to convince um, reluctant uh, editors that my book is, although a book of history, com- uh, timely and relevant, sadly, because here these two billionaires are touting their, quote, state of the art 
brand new, novel, never done before ideas about education technology. And then they invoke ideas that in fact are about a hundred years old. So this idea of personalized learning uh, and uh, intelligent tutoring systems, which aren't a hundred years old, but are uh, easily 50. <laughs> so I laugh thinking, I, I laugh and cry thinking that uh, I think that these tech billionaires in Silicon Valley, that's the shorthand I use to describe them, really pay so little attention to history uh, and has such a such a very poor understanding of what they're talking about for the future of education because I think that they really think that every idea that they have is brand new and no one has ever thought of this before. Because, I mean, it, because these two are, you know, they're geniuses. Their argument is that nothing has changed, that technology has not transformed teaching for the past hundred years, and therefore, uh, whatever they're pitching is uh, an obvious kind of solution, when in fact, one could look at this story and say, gosh, we have a hundred years of failed efforts here. Um, therefore, instead of uh, these these solutions uh, being completely obvious and self-evident, they actually seem very unlikely to succeed. Why is it that they are so successful in flipping this story on its head? I think that there are a couple of reasons. And, And one of the most important ones, I think in particular, Americans, American culture, we really do believe uh, wholeheartedly that the future is going to be more scientific and more technological. I think we've believed that for a very long time. I think it's really a core part of how we imagine the world around us and the steps that we take in order to quote unquote fix problems. We're just going to science the hell out of it, right? That's sort of the American uh, imagination of how things get fixed. Um, you you throw you throw technology at a problem. Uh, ma- you throw math and science at a problem, and that's that's where that's where solutions come from. Um, I think that so I think that there's that piece of it. We I think that we are as Americans we're unlikely to question the argument that the future will be more scientific, the future will be more technological. It's somehow inevitable that children will be using computers in the classroom, for example, because that's just the future as it's been written. That's the future that, you know, Edison famously predicted over a hundred years ago that, you know, textbooks were soon to be obsolete. Uh, Of course, he, much like Gates and Zuckerberg, he was at, he was, he was promoting his own technological innovations to, to take their place, right? He wasn't promoting the computer. He was promoting the film. Um, but I think that we really do think that that's, that's what the future is going to look like. The, the school of tomorrow is always going to be more gadgets. Um, but I think that we also seem to not think a lot as Americans, and particularly, I think, uh, the tech industry doesn't actually know a lot about its own history and doesn't know a lot about the history of education or even the history of education technology. So I think that um, folks come into uh, education, folks come into ed tech, and they are 
convinced that they are innovators. They are convinced that no one has been able to address this problem before, but they're, as engineers, going to be able to solve things. You're writing a book about the history of teaching machines. It's a topic that you've devoted countless words to on your blog, Hack Education. And over and over again, you dig up these historical excerpts that show just how far back the push to basically automate the teaching profession goes. In the name of efficiency, the role of the teacher is always being scaled back. You know, it's for her convenience, of course. She won't have to say grade those pesky essays anymore. And and this seems to go back to the 1950s, right? It's been a case that's been made. Um, I mean, I say it's even farther farther back than that. And I find it really fascinating, you know, to think about the ways in which education technology sort of developed side by side with the field of education psychology. And so, which isn't, you know, which isn't surprising when we think about this, you know, the study of the human mind and the study of the human mind in an educational setting, um, that there were lots of experiments being designed around the turn of the century on how one would be able to sort of monitor and then optimize um, what, what students were doing. But and this was also the era, of course, of standardized testing, which was very quickly mechanized as well. So the arguments that get made is that, you know, once we once we automate education, then teachers will have a lot more time to do the things that teachers should be doing, which is, it, it's never quite clear what, what that is, nor is it clear that there's a, nor is there really a recognition that the reason that teachers are spending so much time doing this menial work is that the field of education psychology really sold the education system on spending more and more time doing menial work. So the menial work never seems to be a problem. The fact that students are spending their time taking multiple choice tests, that's not the problem. If we can just grade it more efficiently, um, then teachers will get to be uh, better caretakers of students' hearts and souls. It seems to me, Audrey, like the the logical extension of all of this, right? That the the concern is about efficiency. How can we make teachers work more efficient? That the logical extension of this is to seek efficiency across the system. So to make education as streamlined and fat-free as possible. And that, of course, is an aim of a kind of hardline set of conservatives and libertarians who view the entire experiment of public education as being frivolous and wasteful. Um, and, and it strikes me as interesting, and I would just like your thoughts on this, that what historically has been a bug in terms of using teaching machines to replace some aspect of teachers' work and using ed tech to make education more efficient... What has historically been a bug has been the the fact that you then have to narrow the aims of education. You have to narrow the aims of instruction because machines just simply can't be as responsive uh, as human beings and can't have relationships like human beings can um, and can't respond to every kind of unique situation the way a human, a human being can. But that actually becomes a feature if your core mission is to really strip down education to 
workforce development or whatever the core aim uh, in mind is for those who don't think plumbers should be reading poetry and don't think that uh, that carpenters should be you know reading about geology. Um, I'm wondering how much you think that uh, that 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 has accelerated the push behind ed tech. Almost counterintuitively, for a long time, the push for more technology, while it has been to, to automate the system and to make students move more rap, so to make students move more rapidly, to make the, the classroom more efficient. So this idea of, of standardization, technology has also been, in some ways, the response to um, mass education. And the argument is that by using technology, we'll be able to, this is the phrase we've used now, personalize education. But even in the 1920s, I think, and even with the rise of standardized testing and the earliest teaching machines, there was a belief that using machines was actually going to individualize instruction um, in the face of the sort of mass education project. So I think that, and I think that this appeal to the individual is also an appeal to precisely those libertarian um, forces that you were talking about. That this is this is a way to get out of um, of a mass a mass education system and a mass education system that is problem a problem not because it's many children but it's because it's um, it is the sort of government focus government oriented decision of what that standardization what that standardization looks like you gave a talk recently in new york about how the automation of teaching has transformed over time into personalized learning which we're hearing so much about today and you talked about how on the one hand the question to turn teaching over to machines goes way, way back, and yet it's constantly evolving, even as people use similar language. For example, when today's ed tech visionaries talk about efficiency, I'm guessing that they're probably using the word and the goal differently than when, say, B.F. Skinner talked about it. The inspiration for thinking about some of this book initially, it's been a few years now, but I, it was in the middle of this, the MOOC um, hype. And I was meeting with Sebastian Thrun, who is the founder of the MOOC startup Udacity. Well, I guess now it's a job training startup Udacity. Um, but he, he was also the an early inventor of one of the self-driving cars and worked at Google on their self-driving car project. And he gave a group of us a ride in Google's self-driving car. And he was sort of driving slash or the car was driving uh, around Palo Alto. He was kind of explaining how the car worked and and he was talking about all of the massive amounts of data collection that Google did. You know, there was cameras on the top of the car, cameras on all, all over the outside of the vehicle. There were sensors inside and outside the car. There were cameras inside the car. He talked about the years of data that they had with the Google Mapping Project. And he was talking about the ways in which, with all this data, that Google was going to be able to understand how to get people from here to there in the most efficient ways possible. By people driving themselves, they aren't using the roads to full efficiency. And as I was listening to him sort of wax philosophically about the power of data and this 
mapping project that, that he'd undertaken with a self-driving car, I thought, my God, that's precisely what, how he envisions education. I think that that's how the tech world envisions education, that if you can just gather enough data um, and somehow understand where people should be going, uh, that you're going to be able to you're going to be able to design the maps, write the algorithms, and then be able to get them on that path more efficiently if they would um, under their own free will, if you will. And so I think that it's, I mean, I think that these, this idea of an automated teaching machine is both a very old one and constantly reinvented by people who come to education again with this deep faith in data and, and science. I would just add on there that, you know, I, I'm imagining that I'm sitting down to lunch with one of the Koch brothers and say that to them. Uh, I think they would add on uh, that actually there's another piece here, which is not only can you replace a teacher uh, by, you know, collecting all the, the inputs that teachers would through their senses, um, but actually you could by programming the machine, control the automatic teacher better than you could control the human being. Um, and you could actually keep it focused on preparing students for you know, future work. Robots tend to not uh, be interested in collective bargaining at this <laughs> point in, in robot development. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, what's interesting though is you know, historically, some of the pushback against teaching machines in the, particularly in sort of the post Sputnik era, um, some of the stuff that B.F. Skinner was doing, people were actually a little concerned that the development of these kinds of machines that would automate teaching would be something that the Soviets could control. And so I think that there were fears that, great, we build teaching machines and maybe they are co Maybe they are teaching machines that work in the service of the Koch brother ideology, but what if they work in the service of, you know, Stalin? And so it's, you know, it's fascinating again to sort of look at this, look at this really rich history of education technology and see, I think, some of these arguments that we, you know, we never seem to, you know, we, we sort of never seem to get out of, I think, um, partially because, like I said, we just, we just don't pay attention to history. Audrey, you also keep a very close watch on all the money behind the ed tech industry. Now, B.F. Skinner didn't have a venture capital firm backing him, as far as I know, whereas there is so much money behind the guys who are peddling the present-day push to automate education. There is a, so much money behind them. And what's been fascinating to me, and one of the things that I focused on this year with my Spencer and the Spencer fellowship that I had was I was I was really interested initially in how venture capitalists, Silicon Valley venture capitalists are really driving the conversation around a lot of education technology um, ideas and 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 then policy ideas as well. And but when I look, you know, when I look closely, it, I, I still feel as though the the main force who's, I think, really outlining policy around education technology is less the venture capitalists, and it still remains Bill Gates. Um, and now with his his little uh, buddy, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who is, of course, not a venture capitalist. He's a venture philanthropist. Um, and But I, I think that, the, that we 
that we are still seeing the, the power of Silicon Valley ideology, but the venture capitalists tend to follow on with some of the other stories, I think, that they still largely hear from the main education reform groups. So they're still very much focused on charter schools. Um, and again, this idea of personalized learning is really fascinating to them. But this is something that Gates has been funding since the outset of Gates funding education projects. It seems to me like there are a number of factors that make the present push for the use of educational technology in the classroom um, more uh, powerful uh, and um, in many ways more threatening than previous pushes. And I want to add on one more, which is a shift in the way that reformers have begun to talk about jobs and specifically yeah. the emphasis on the jobs of tomorrow um, that you know historically it's been a problem for schools to prepare students for the workforce because the best way to learn work is by actually doing it uh, and by doing it in context and by doing it alongside active professionals, none of which is really possible in a traditional school setting. Um, and it's particularly impossible when you are then going to need to swap out all the teachers who knew how to operate in a Mac LC2 and bring in a whole new crew of teachers who know how to use the internet. Um, but technology seems to solve the problem there. And as the conversation has shifted to preparing students for the jobs of the future, it seems that uh, that if school were automated, that if um, teachers were algorithms, that it would be possible to instantaneously upgrade the teaching force uh, and transform the curriculum, that it would be just a matter of tinkering with the software. Uh, and I'm just wondering about your thoughts on this relationship between the concern of workforce development and the powerful effect it has on uh, education policy and the links that folks have made to ed tech. I think that, I mean, I think that we've really seen this particularly with the everyone should learn to code mantra, which is somehow managed to infiltrate all the way into, you know, preschool and, and kindergarten where you get updates that kindergartners have to learn to code because of job, job readiness as though, uh, as though a five-year-old, um, as though that's as that as though job readiness ha should be the focus of what um, what we're thinking about with five-year-olds, but also as though anything that you would do that's highly technological um, and specific is actually going to be perhaps relevant to to a five-year-old's uh, a five-year-old when they're ready to enter enter the job force. Um, but I think that Code.org, which is absolutely an industry funded um, entity has really has really reshaped the conversation and has made it clear that learning computer science right learning learning these skills is about job readiness and not about the kind of sort of intellectual exploration that I think previous generations of of computer science advocates uh, uh, um, might have might that's not how they might have framed it previously and so i think that i think that that's certainly i think that certainly code.org is a great example of how silicon valley has managed to really i think change the narrative about what 
people, what people should be doing in the, what students should be doing in the classroom, but why, why they should be. One of my favorite things about you, Audrey, is that you write about technology as a non-tech person. You actually have a background in comparative literature. And as Jack knows, I'm constantly trying to figure out ways to work my own literature background into this podcast. Somehow it always seems to end up getting edited out. I think about the work you do as sort of listening for the stories that we tell ourselves about the past and the endless promise of the future and how those stories intersect with products that are available to be purchased, downloaded, and brought into the classroom right now. I dropped out of my comparative literature program, but I do have a master's degree in folklore. And I love telling people that because I think folklore clearly lives in the set of degrees that one should never get, according to some stories, right? One should never get certain degrees because they're useless professionally. And to me, I like to remind people that, um, that, that, you know, absolutely the things that you do with your degree are, are, you know, what, what you end up doing professionally is not necessarily directly connected but that paying attention to stories and paying attention to the way in which culture gets shaped, um, thinking about thinking about history and thinking about group practices and group lore, right? Like I'm I'm fascinated by the sort of in-group stories uh, that, and I would call them sort of legends or myths, even that um, education reformers and Silicon Valley investors and technology entrepreneurs tell each other, they have these little stories that they repeat that might as well, you know, be, um, it is their, it is their folklore. They re- they repeat these stories, you know, that school hasn't changed in hundreds of years um, that are not grounded in truth or in much accuracy, but that they, but that are, have been elevated to this level of sacred truth. And it's very hard to sort of, for them to sort of see outside uh, their, their culture and their, their cultural values. So I think approaching these things as an, as an anthropologist, right. Approaching the study of, of technology, approaching education as an ethnographer, it certainly makes me a better journalist. I think it helps make me a better writer. And it makes me very sympathetic when I hear students say, I plan to major in art history. And I'm like, you do that. You'll be fine. (laughs) That was Audrey Waters. She writes the blog Hack Education and is also the co-host of her own podcast, The Contrafabulists, where she dissects technological myth-making. Jack and I will be right back with a few final thoughts. And based on the furious scribbling that my co-host is doing right now, I'm guessing they will be profound thoughts. A theme that emerged a bit in that conversation, but that I think is worth underscoring, is the increasing weight that people have placed on ed tech as not only a cost-saving device, but also as something that will make the delivery of education more streamlined and more efficient, and therefore will both uh, lower costs in terms of inputs and produce more measurable returns uh, to the economy, to the state treasury, and to uh, you know the, the pockets of shareholders. Um, this often gets talked about as return on investment, and certainly there is return on investment to be made on investing in these 
edtech products, but there's also a great deal of confidence that education can be turned over to machines, and in doing so, you can eliminate all of the costs associated with teachers, and that's about 80% of the cost of education. And you can really then focus what students are doing in schools, that you know, no longer will we have these uh, extended one-offs about something that students are interested in. No longer will we have teachers going rogue and doing month-long projects on things that are related to current events. Uh, instead, you know, we'll just we'll control what's going on in the classroom through an algorithm, and we'll be able to update that at will. Uh, which is, you know, again related to another conversation that people are perpetually engaged in, which is this endless chatter about the jobs of the future. And of course, the teachers of the present uh, can't simply be updated uh, in terms of, you know, changing what they know and what their skills are, and therefore they Im- immediately are out of date in terms of preparing students for the work of the future. Uh, but an algorithm can be changed almost instantly. And so uh, the conversation about ed tech is often one that is really at its core about return on investment, about thinking about education as an investment that we are making as a society on behalf of the private sector and, and on behalf of taxpayers. And that um, you know it really is something that can be measured in dollars and cents. And when people are aware of that, I think they tend to be less um, uh, naive about the promise of ed tech. You mentioned the jobs of the future, and you know I'm a little bit obsessed with that right now. On the you know on the one hand, the the calls for kind of urgent systemic change are coming with even more urgency, right? That that the people feel seem to be driven by genuine unease over what the future holds. But then you know the the sort of confounding part of the argument is that you have employers who themselves stand to be wiped out by technological change, making the case for systemic change at the school level. And it can kind of make your head explode if you think about it too much. (laughs) Which is the reason why we don't think about anything too much on this show. Well, on that note, um, I Jack, I want to give our, our listeners a little update. Um, a few episodes back, we launched an entrepreneurial endeavor. We put up a Patreon page because that's what people do now. And you're going to give us an update on return on investment? Well, it is still small, but it is growing. So just a big thank you to... It's to, like my brain. <laughs> a big thank you to everyone who has chipped in. It will help us keep the podcast going and also... Perhaps if we round up enough gas money, send the Have You Heard Mobile out onto the road again. The address where you can drop by and make a small donation is patreon.com. Have You Heard Podcast. I'm Jack Schneider. And I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And if you're a Patreon member, then hang on for a second and we'll go into the weeds with you. Everybody else, thanks for listening. This is Have You Heard. Have You Heard.